I love that song. I hope you find 10,000 reasons and more to bless the Lord. <clears throat> the Psalms have been a great stimulus for me in learning to bless the Lord. You know, that's Psalm 103. That's how it starts with, bless the Lord, O my soul. And we sometimes wonder, what does that mean? That I'm going to bless him. I want him to bless me. Uh-huh. What does bless mean? Technically, it's like in Spanish, bendecir, to say well, to speak well of God. When you speak well of God, you are lifting him up, lifting his name. So that's what we're doing when we sing these songs. We're lifting him up. And as he is lifted up, he draws us to himself. That's what Jesus said, wasn't it, about the cross? Well, my passion for the Psalms is not a new thing. They've been a staple in my diet for many years, many decades now. And I'm really so grateful for them. It's not a new thing in Christian history either. In fact, the Psalms were long a staple of Jewish piety. They sang them continually as well as listening to them in the synagogue and in the temple. Jesus, most likely, as many Jews, had all 150 Psalms memorized. Did you get that? Went right over my head. 150 Psalms memorized in his head, in his heart. Can you imagine what that would do to us to have that much word of God going around inside us? Well, the Psalms have long been a source of comfort and depth in Christian growth. So I want to encourage you about the Psalms this morning. Actually, it was while I was here pastoring at IBC, our first go-round, leading men's prayer breakfasts, where we always spent time with a psalm. And that's when I became, began to be more conscious of the therapeutic impact of the psalms on our emotions. You see, what the psalmists were actually doing was they were processing their intense feelings, their overwhelming emotions through prayer and poetry, through singing and worship. And as you and I turn regularly to the psalms with our strong emotions, be they joyful or despairing, either extreme, we find that God meets us right there in the crucible of our feelings. And he shows us how to draw close to him in spite of those feelings and then to unburden our heart, letting all those feelings flow out. That's what he wants, to do, wants us to do. Sometimes those feelings flow out in praise, other times in anger, and the whole gamut of emotions. Many times in brokenness and confusion. Maybe someone is asking, but, but if that's what the psalmists are doing, how can that be God's word to us? Sounds like our word to him, but where do we hear his voice in all of that? God's word in all of that is that it's okay to be real with God. Did we know that? Uh, yeah, doesn't sound very exciting. Oh, what are you saying? <laughs> to be able to be real with somebody, that's what we need. So that he can make us authentic with each other. 
You can be real with God. The psalmists were, the prophets were. It's okay to pour out before him all the misery that we sometimes carry inside and we help, let him help us sort it out. That way we don't pour that misery on other people. <laughs> he can handle it. Others just get angry and resentful and we mess up our relationships. Pour it out unto God and he will help you sort it out. This is in fact fundamental to our learning how to pray and worship authentically. It's fundamental to our discipleship and our witness. Are you with me? Do you see how urgent the Psalms are in your life? Of course, not just the Psalm. It's, it's the whole counsel of God, but especially the Psalms have this therapeutic effect. Besides that, at this time of year when many are celebrating Thanksgiving, the Psalms are the perfect venue for stopping to focus on the goodness of our Lord who grants us day after day and year after year of his loving kindness. You guys are really quiet. In second service, they would have said, Amen. <laughs> but you guys think, oh, we're just kind of here to put up with this guy till he finishes talking. Look at it, day after day, year after year of his loving kindness. Oh, wow. Now you're with me. <laughs> That's wonderful. In spite of all the ways we fall short, no? And even through those times of adversity, those trials that we go through, his loving kindness never fails. So today I want us to focus on probably the oldest psalm in the Psalter. It was written by Moses, whom Scripture describes as the humblest man on the face of the earth. Remember that about him. And let's pause just to remember what kind of life he led. Forty years as prince of Egypt. Oh, wow. Did he learn to strut? And then 40 years as what? A shepherd in the desert. Wow. Did he learn to bend low? And then 40 years as liberator of his people, legislator, judge, true founder of the Israelite community. And you remember all the trouble they gave him. <laughs> well, it's the only psalm that Moses left us that we know of. And it actually reveals the subjects that occupied his mind continually. But it also reveals the equilibrium that characterized his mind, the emotional intelligence that characterized him. So I want you just to listen closely to this psalm where Moses is praying and he begins with, O Lord, you have been our dwelling place from one generation to another. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn us humans back to where we came from, 
just by saying, return to dust, O children of Adam, because a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning, it springs up new. By evening, it's cut down and it withers. We are consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation, for you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 years if we have the strength. Yet the best of them is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord. How long will this last? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. And we will sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. For as many years as we have seen trouble. Let your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us and the work of our hands. May you establish it for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I think this represented the ache in Moses' heart. I think many times it represents the ache in mine. Maybe yours too. So it's really exemplary what Moses does for us here. He pours out the ache in prayer. Instead of trying to take things into his own hands to fix things, instead of getting stuck or paralyzed in his negative emotions, he pours it out before the Lord. Do you see the emotional therapy? We need to learn to turn our heartaches into prayer. Basic lesson in living 
and in Christian discipleship. So we want to take note. We're not going to try to expound the whole psalm. Just three things we want to pick out of this psalm and see that these were things that really occupied Moses' mind. They were heavy on his heart and mind. And the first one is that sense of time and eternity. He was so aware of the passing of time under the umbrella of authority, of eternity. So we get both of those underscoring the fleetingness of our human existence under this amazing sky of eternity. So we can begin by paying attention to all those expressions in this prayer that indicates something about the passing of time. Did you notice it? I hope you did. Right from verse 1, where he said, from one generation to another, he has been our dwelling place. And from everlasting to everlasting in verse 2, he is God. Try to wrap your mind around that. He's put eternity into our heart, Ecclesiastes 3.11, but even so, our mind cannot fathom Eternity, which has no limits. Then again, in verses 4 and 5, we find day and night. And we find morning and evening, again, emphasizing the same. And then, starting in verse 5 and thereafter, multiple times, we find days and years. Days and and years, and I love it in, starting in verse 3. Yom is the word for day in Hebrew. Shanach is the word for years, year. And you just find these two repeating like a pair all through the psalm, like the ticking of a huge clock, like a pendulum swinging back and forth. So I want us to get the feeling of it this morning. In this side of the congregation, you're going to be yom. And you extend that M, yum, you got it? Just keep saying the M while this half of the congregation is going to say yanach. Sh- sorry, shanach, shanach. And you have to aspirate that H on the end, okay? You're shanach. Let's practice shanach. And you just cut it off with shanach. But you guys, yum, shanach, yum, shanach. Yum, yum, that's it. Okay, you get the impression. It feels like a pendulum, doesn't it? Days and years, days and years. That's the impression we get. That's, I think, what was coming out of Moses' heart under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he continually talks about how fleeting our life is, how fast the years go by under this Sky, think of the night sky with it looks like infinite stars over our heads of eternity. Our sojourn on this earth is compared to dust. Verse 3, when he tells us, return to dust, the dust from which we came. It's also compared to the image of a flood washing away everything in its path. The verb that he uses, you sweep men away. That verb in the Hebrew is something like a flood just washing away everything in its path. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. And then we are likened unto grass. 
springs up in the morning, and by evening it's cut down and it's gone. That's how fleeting our existence is. Besides that, he says our lifespan is 70, 80 years. I'm right there in between those two. It's described as passing so quickly, laden with trouble and sorrow. And then what do we do? We fly away. Wow. It reminds me of a movie from a long time ago. 1971, many of you were not even born yet. I was a strapping young adult. And Fiddler on the Roof was just a fascinating movie. We love, oops, I missed this one. Sorry. You can take a moment to meditate on that one. Actually, that one's supposed to come later. Anyway, I don't know what happened here, but we'll come back to it, okay? And we'll move on. No, we skipped one. What happened to that one? There it is. Is it there? But it's not there. There it is. There it is. All right, I knew it was hiding in there. There it is. Did we already see that? Oh, so I've been punching and I haven't been watching and I've gotten all out of sync with my PowerPoint. That's terrible. All right, this is where we're supposed to be. All right, now you understand its relevance, okay? Fiddler on the Roof, early 20th century. For those of you who don't know the story, early 20th century, Imperial Russia. The film centers on Tevye. He's a poor Jewish milkman, faced with the challenge of marrying off five daughters. In the midst of the growing tension in his small Jewish village, located where else but in the Ukraine. Mm. They are under threats from the Tsar in, the, in Moscow. All Jews are in danger of being banished. So as Tevye's eldest prepares to marry her boyfriend, instead of the rich widower with whom Tevye had made a deal, the song that is sung at the marriage festival, you remember it? It's that one. Sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. Sounds like it could have come right out of Psalm 90. Yeah. Swiftly fly the years. The first stanza says swiftly flow the days. Okay, and fly the years. One season following another, laden with happiness and tears. Well, in the end, all of his daughters seem to break with Jewish tradition. They're all forced to flee from their village. They scatter to the four winds. And it all seems to point to the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. You remember that conclusion? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That was Solomon who achieved the very highest you could achieve in this life. And he looked out on, on, on it all and said, it's all vanity. Keep that in mind as you pursue your daily pursuits. The conclusion of the wisest man in the Old Testament. And think of Moses with those children of Israel wandering around that wilderness for 40 years. We don't know exactly how many of them there were. The estimates, given the different interpretations of the Hebrew there, suggest somewhere between 50,000 and a million or two. They were celebrating funerals every day. Multiple funerals 
every day. How would that impact you? That's when we come to the culmination of this prayer regarding time. And that's the one that we really have to take note of. The plea that we will learn to number our days aright. And notice, he doesn't say your years. How old are you? Oh, I'm so many years old. <laughs> what if you had to keep count of the days? I would be getting close to 27,000 days. How old are you? I'm 27,312 days old. Yeah, and counting still. Yeah, we don't count the days, do we? We just count the years, big blocks of 365. So how are we going to learn to count them aright, number them aright? It's a God thing. It's emotional intelligence from above to learn how to value each day before it is gone forever. Now, so we hope to gain that heart of wisdom that Moses hints at, begins with the fear of the Lord, doesn't it? Fear God and have nothing else to fear. That's the biblical logic. That's true emotional intelligence. Have you thought about that? Maybe not. Then think about it. Eh? Think about it. So the second thing that Moses has on his heart and on his mind Besides the passing of time, there's also this strong sense of God's wrath. Did you notice how many times different words for wrath show up in this psalm? And this is something that makes us very uncomfortable. You know, why does God have to be wrathful? Somebody will say, oh, I don't like this part of God. Please. Well, Moses uses three different words to describe it. It's in, in the Hebrew, it's hema and ebrach and af. Wrath, anger, and indignation. They're all big, strong words, aren't they? It's such a strong emotion. I remember from childhood, my father's anger. What an impression it made on me. And you? Maybe some of you have had the same experience. My father's anger inspired much fear and anxiety. Even quite a bit of reactive anger on my part. Can anybody identify? It tends to work that way, unfortunately. Anger begets more anger, doesn't it? At least on the human plane. Especially on the part of those who are the objects of that anger. And I confess, I've had a time getting my tendency to anger under control. Figuring out how much of it my dad might be responsible for and how much of it I would have to accept the blame for. Do you follow me? It's tricky, isn't it? You know how the Old Testament says that God will visit the sins of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation. That's not because God is actively trying to make this happen so that you suffer for what your parents did. That's not at all what it means. It just means that what your parents have done you're going to have a tendency to repeat, whether you mean to or not, in spite of your best intentions not to. Oh, wow. This is a spiritual law that's bigger than we are. But then you get over to Jeremiah, 
And Jeremiah clarifies, oh, yeah, but each one will die for his or her own sins. We don't die because of our parents' sins. It's our own that brings death to us. So it's tricky. Don't go blaming too much those back there behind you. Look within to find the true answers. Well, Moses had witnessed firsthand the wrath of God, especially against those Egyptians who were so abusive toward God's people. Remember those 10 plagues that God sent upon Egypt? Their purpose was not to wound and hurt the people. That was not God's purpose, no. It was to demonstrate the impotence of the Egyptian gods. You see, they worshipped the god of the Nile, the god of the sun, the god of nature, all these other things that were not gods and were not worthy of worship. And those plagues were demonstrations, one after the other, that their gods were worthless, powerless. Later, Moses witnessed how Pharaoh and his army were all drowned in the Red Sea. You remember that part. But afterward, he also had to see God's wrath active against his own people who showed themselves to be extremely stubborn, hard-headed, stiff-necked, even after witnessing all of God's miracles on their behalf. Does that sound like anybody you know? Oh, is this a mirror? What am I seeing here? Yes, you follow me? But you see, we have so many misconceptions regarding God's wrath. As if he were some angry old man ready to launch out and smash anyone who crosses him. Nothing could more misrepresent our holy God. It's not who he is. His anger and his wrath, biblically speaking, is simply his total opposition to evil, to all evil. Do you realize the implications of that? If you do, then you will thank God for his wrath. Wow, thank you, Lord. How lost would we be if God stopped opposing all evil with all his being? Have you wrapped your mind around that? How lost would we be? And heaven forbid that we should perceive the cross as a place where God is pouring out his wrath. Heaven forbid. The cross is rather the place where God is pouring out love and forgiveness. You see, what Jesus was doing there was he was representing his Father's heart. We've read 2 Corinthians 5.19, no? That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. Yes. As God was there triumphing over the evil one. The cross is the most beautiful manifestation of God's opposition to evil. So God's wrath, his opposition to evil, is actually a vital part of his love. 
Can you imagine living, can you imagine anyone really loving someone else and not being willing to defend them from harm? Is that love? If you're not willing to stand up for them and defend them? That's what God was doing there at the cross. So his wrath actually moves us to seek him, to find our refuge in him. That is emotional intelligence. Learning what is really worth being angry about and not getting angry about all the other stuff that we usually get angry about, right? You with me? All right. Number three, there's another point in this psalm, this prayer of Moses that really stands out strong. And you'll be glad we're finishing on this note because it has to do with his strong sense of God's Mercy. The word in Hebrew is hesed, usually translated mercy, sometimes grace, sometimes favor. Back in the um, 16th century, a guy named Miles Coverdale, who was an English ecclesiastical reformer and bishop, Miles Coverdale, living in very troubled times, was working on the foundation laid by William Tyndale, the great Bible translator, but it was Miles Coverdale who actually produced the first complete printed translation of the Bible in English. He's a pretty important guy, isn't he, for someone you didn't even know about. (laughs) He's especially known for his translation of the Psalms. Miles Coverdale loved the Psalms, so I feel very identified with him. When he came to the Hebrew word hesed, he just said none of these English words really does it justice. So after much prayer and meditation, he invented a whole new word in English to translate hesed. It was the word loving kindness. Loving kindness didn't exist before 1534 as a single word in English. He invented it. He said, we got to have both. It's love and it's kindness all mixed together. I like that. That's God's Hesed. Well, from the beginning of the psalm, Moses was already recognizing that God was like a refuge for the Israelites, a dwelling place, a safe lodging. And starting with verse 14, which is really the final stanza of the psalm, the prayer, what Moses is emphasizing is God's mercy, his hesed, his loving kindness, his deeds on behalf of his people in spite of how they've been. His splendor, his favor that he has shown to his people. You see, Moses is being very pastoral in this last part of the psalm. Do you notice that change in the tone? He's interceding on behalf of the very people who had caused him so much grief and pain and anguish. Do you get the example? I don't know if you do. I can't see any reaction. Yes? That's the example for us. How we are to respond to those who give us grief and anguish and pain. you got to have emotional intelligence from the Psalms, from God, from Jesus to be able to react that way. He's praying for them. Just what Jesus recommended in the Sermon on the Mount. You pray for your enemy. You love your enemies. You bless those who curse you and despitefully use you. Is that our natural reaction? In Christ It becomes 
a natural, supernatural reaction. Moses prays there in verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, your loving kindness. Satisfy us in the morning of our lives, early on, with that deep characteristic of yours. That word satisfy is most interesting. In the Hebrew, saba can be translated satiate us, saturate us, fill us and fulfill us. So I ask you, where can you best saturate your soul with God's loving kindness? Let me think here. Where can I do this? I hope you thought of the cross. Because it is the culminating moment when God's mercies were incarnated most intensely where they were historicized. Hesed became historicized at the cross. Celestial reality was converted into earthly history. Divine reality was made human right there on that cross. Because you see, Jesus didn't die so that God could forgive us. He died because God forgives us. He was, he was declaring with his mouth and acting out with his flesh the divine forgiveness. Personally, in the face of the worst, most scandalous human crime ever committed against God or anybody, if Jesus could forgive that, he can forgive you, can he? You better believe it. Our God came to show us his love. He came to teach us the way to life. And we murdered him with violence and brutality. And why do I say we? I wasn't there, Pastor. I wouldn't have done that. Hmm. We had all rejected his rule. We have all rejected his rule over us from time immemorial. And that's what they were acting out. Through those Jewish and Roman representatives, we were all there. But even so, he forgave us to the last drop of his blood in person all the way to death. What an amazing fountain of mercy. I confess, I just want to sit at those nail-scarred feet and drink in that kind of love. I want to put my mind to soak in that loving kindness right here. You got it? Soaking. Soaking it up. That's true emotional intelligence beyond anything you and I could ever imagine. And as we learn to focus our lives right there, what he does is to establish the work of our hands. You see, Jesus overcame the vanity of vanities. He accomplished something real on your behalf and on mine. Something so real that it will last for eternity. It overcomes the vanity. That's why Paul says, in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Because we're working together with him. Do we need to practice praying the Psalms or what? We live in times of cultural revolution. I hope you're aware of it. 
radicals are trying to transform the values and beliefs of our society right down to the roots. It's a total brainwashing. It's ideological subversion. In the midst of such convulsive and chaotic times, it is urgent, I say, urgent for you and me to grow in emotional and spiritual intelligence. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us through Scripture, through the Psalms, through the Gospel. In the person of Jesus, we see it personified, enfleshed perfectly. So my prayer is that he may be lifted up, even as Moses lifted up that bronze serpent in the wilderness, so that he may draw us all to himself, the source of true wisdom, wisdom incarnate. Would you pray with me? Holy Savior, we bless your name for your loving kindness. We thank you for this psalm of your humble servant, Moses. We pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart may be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name.